0: I've always loved Christmas. The wish list, the food, the gathered family. I also love watching those old Christmas movies, you know, the, the Christmas carol, the Christmas story. It's a wonderful life. The anticipation of getting presents and getting to see extended family just grows and grows until Christmas Eve comes and then maybe you go to church for a carol service like we're going to have here. Or if you grew up in a family like mine, maybe you listen to Santa Claus coming on the radio then when you're a kid, you're probably the first one up to go down and explore what's under the Christmas tree. Adventure and excitement await. I like just about everything about it. I even like how our post-Christian culture constantly reminds people that there's a reason for the season. And that there are some things more important than money and fame and pursuing pleasure. I was thinking recently about a movie called A Family Man starring Nicolas Cage and Tia Leone. It's ironically not exactly a family film, uh, but it is a Christmas Carol-like uh, film, and it looks at a life of a very financially successful 30-something-year-old Wall Street whiz. He, uh, he lives on the penthouse floor of the fanciest building in town. He drives an exotic red sports car, and he has a, a beautiful lady companion. He, uh, he does a good deed for just the right person during the holiday time, the story goes, and then he's given a glimpse into what life could have been like if he had just settled down he had settled down and become a family man. He trades the glitz of Wall Street for selling tires. His supercar is now what's parked all along this road right here, it's a minivan. His romantic life is now different as well. It's a thought-provoking movie, and it really makes one ask, what are the most important things in life? Is the purpose of life to pursue fame, fortune, relationships, fancy cars and houses maybe? powerful job, an adoring spouse? Is the point to live for you? That sounds a little off-key at church, but one of the most popular so-called Christian books in recent years is entitled Your Best Life Now. You certainly wouldn't be the only one, uh, even the only Christian maybe, on your block that's living for you. But did you know uh, that lottery winners are some of the unhappiest people in the world? After the initial euphoria of winning wears off, Uh, they become miserable. One social scientist surmises that it's nearly impossible to enjoy the small things after you win such a huge jackpot. Nothing can compare. Your ability to be content with the small things in life is just completely blown out of the water. Now I know what many of you are thinking, I'd really like to test that hypothesis. (laughs) Well, I'm hoping that after today you won't feel like you have to. Today we're going to get help with the question, what are we here for anyway, from one of the most popular Powerful, wealthiest, and wisest men who ever lived. He wrote a book. If written today, it would probably be found in the self help section of your local bookstore, only it'd be much different from most of the other books. What sets it apart is its source and its realism. Today, we're going to look at the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. Specifically, we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, and you can find that in the Pew Bibles on page 559. And it's really uh, this section of the book that is a wrap-up of the entire book. And as we look at the scripture, I hope that you'll think about some of those big questions too. We're going to look at this text in three headings. The Wearying World, The Wise Word, and The Whole Work. So first, let's look at the wearying world. As we do, we're going to consider some of the context and content of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Now many scholars think that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. We know from the text itself that it was written by a powerful king of Jerusalem who had, quote, acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him, close quote. He also had more possessions than any other ruler. That fits the description of Solomon, and so we think that this preacher uh, was him. The book examines our world and makes a careful study of different philosophy, means of meaning, and asks, what is life about? Why are we here? And trying to make sense of all of life, he wrestles throughout with, uh, with, why is there death? And where can I find meaning in life that is so short and will end? In considering these questions, the author laments the vanity or the fleetingness of life. He uses the word vanity 38 times in this book. Pretty early on in chapter 1, he says, quote, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Even asking these questions and not having a ready answer highlights the tension, doesn't it? We humans long for meaning and we search for it intently and incessantly. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. But instead of eternity and ultimate meaning, we find weariness. We do so for two reasons. Sin and its fruit, death. Ecclesiastes 7.20 puts it this way. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We are all infected with sin. We do things that are wrong to our fellow human beings, and we do things that are wrong to God as well. We fall way short of his call on our lives. In fact, our first ancestor, Adam, did that as well. He was created in the midst of a beautiful garden with a clear mission, to fellowship with God and to work as God's regent so that the world would flourish under God's good rule. But he rejected that assignment, even though God told him that it would lead to death. Death came and work was now toil. Listen from Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. and pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. That is why we have weariness and brevity of life. That is why our bodies start to decay and break down, or in some cases are ravaged by cancer, or are stopped suddenly by a heart attack. Our bodies are subject to death and decay thanks to sin. Those who know God's word realize this, but what if you were trying to find meaning without knowing this key piece of the puzzle? Many have tried to find meaning apart from God, including the family man we thought about earlier in that story. Even the preacher who wrote this book tries to find meaning apart from God. His first try, books. Look there at verse 11, verse 12. rather. He says, But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Excess devotion to books. I know, uh, I'm sure for the students here, deep into finals preparation time, uh, this hits home, right? Uh, To me, it hits the nail on the head for Solomon, too. He's finished this book of wisdom. He's trying to find out why things happen the way they do. He's uh, likely considered all the scriptures and a lot of other writings and experts and he's really just trying to make sense of it all. Have you ever been in that place before? Where you thought, if, um, if I just study a question long enough, I can figure this out. Uh, I can figure it out to my satisfaction. Well, Solomon tried to do the same thing. But what was his conclusion? He said he couldn't figure things out through wisdom. He says, quote, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He says a little bit later in the book, As you do do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. I dare say if the wisest man who ever lived can't figure it out, then you and I aren't going to figure it out through books either. Here Solomon saves us the trouble of getting a PhD in philosophy. Excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. It makes sense, too. The Bible says that knowledge can puff up. Some pursue it to justify their own action or to judge others, uh, perhaps to put themselves even in a way on the throne of God. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a good thing to challenge ourselves intellectually. We have nothing to fear from the world's philosophies. But we just need to realize that we're not going to find our ultimate meaning there. Solomon also tried pleasure. Perhaps to a greater extent than anyone before or since, he wrote... Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And remember, he had the means to try it all. And he did. Good food, good drink, laughter, concubines, dancers, slaves, treasure, birds, flocks. If you live today, you could add video games, vacations, movies, television, plastic surgery, uh, massages, facials, pedicures. Yes, some guys even get those. Uh, chocolate, organic foods, uh, iPhone and iPad, and I whatever you could think of. He might even have the new Dodge Ram 1500 20-inch wheels. Not that anyone in particular might be interested in having that vehicle. You name it and he would have it. You know what his conclusion is? He says, quote, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Some of us learn this in life, don't we? I remember when I was a teenager, I really, really wanted a car. I wanted a turbocharged Red Eagle Talon. And this is when you know you're old, when the manufacturer no longer exists of the car you want. It was all-wheel drive, it was manual transmission, and it was fast. And when I got a scholarship, my dad uh, bought a used model for me. And it was great for a while. But anytime we get something we want, enjoyment wears out over time, doesn't it? Well, I didn't quite learn my lesson that a car wasn't going to lead to lasting joy. So some years later, I started to really, really want a big SUV. And uh, I guess I live by that old edge, go big or go home, because I got one of the biggest, a Ford Expedition. All right, so here was this Texan coming to Washington, D.C. and driving around a Ford Expedition, and it was awesome for a while. And then it became a pain to park, it cost a fortune to fill up, and it just couldn't live up to my oversized expectations. If you find yourself really, really wanting something material, remember that it won't bring you lasting happiness or meaning. It didn't do it for me, and it didn't do it for Solomon, and it won't do it for you either. (laughs) Materialism is a real trap. There's a possibly mythical saying attributed to one of the Rockefellers among America's richest families. Quote, I don't want all the land in the world, just all the land touching mine. That's what materialism is like, right? We think just a little bit more, and I'll be content. But we never are. Once we get that next thing, we just want something a little more. Well, there goes wisdom and pleasure to fill that God-sized hole. What about building things that last, that bring beauty to the world? Solomon tried that, too. Listen to this. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. We also know that Solomon built the temple for the Lord. This failed to bring meaning to him for a couple of reasons. First, Solomon realized that he wasn't going to be around to enjoy these forever. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. As they say, you can't take it with you. A direct rebuke to that silly bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Whims what? All is vanity. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Our chief end should not be to get great estates, not to lay up treasures upon earth, which is the degeneracy of mankind since the fall. Sometimes they never arrive in an estate. They do not get the venison they hunt for. Or if they do, what have they? That which will not fill the heart any more than the mariner's breath will fill the sails of the ship. A second reason is that even our greatest works typically won't last very long. Forget about houses, cars, and estates. Of the seven wonders of the ancient world, only the pyramids still stand, and they've been looted, and, we too, and they too will wear down in time, and ultimately we know that the current earth will be consumed by fire and that everything's headed for the furnace, as we read about earlier in the service today. Our great works won't last for eternity either. Listen to the words of Jesus recorded just before that scripture reading we read earlier today. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Okay, great works are out. What about relationships, Derek? Well, Solomon tried that too. He pointed out that he had singers and concubines and we know that he had scores of wives. No doubt his parties had all the right people there. He probably had some legitimate good friends too. Even his best friends couldn't help him when he faced death though. I was listening to uh, one preacher on Ecclesiastes and he noted that it was twelve uh, five that really hit home to him. Look down there, it says, man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Now it isn't just people that don't know you that go about the streets, it's the mourners, it's the people that are actually sad that you're gone, that go about the streets. It's those who do know you. So this preacher from Texas humorously said, so not long after the pallbearer lowers your casket, The pallbearers are all going to talk amongst themselves about where are we going to go eat lunch? Which Tex-Mex place are we going to go to? That's just kind of the way things have to be, right? We have to continue on in our lives. Um, Now, we know that that friendship is wonderful, companionship is meaningful, but it won't defeat death. Well, if study, pleasures, works, and relationships are out, what about reputation? Solomon does say in Ecclesiastes, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the New Testament says that elders in the church must have a good reputation with outsiders. But we need to be careful here. A reputation for honesty and integrity is really important. But that isn't what we're usually striving for in our reputation, is it? Most often we want to be known, admired, and respected. Well, Solomon has some critical words for us in Washington as he reviews the life of a king in chapter 4. He says, He went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So here we have the proverbial rags to riches story from prison to palace. And even in that too is vanity and will be fleeting and will be forgotten. Now, maybe these aren't the ways that you try to find meaning. To diagnose it well, you might ask yourself some questions. What is it that gets you excited? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? What's your favorite kind of conversation? If just one thing in your life were to be taken away, what would be your biggest fear? These might help you to answer for who or what you're living for. We should ask ourselves the same questions as a church. Do we want the best buildings reputation as being smart or historic or a growing attendance? These things also can be vanity. If these things are unsatisfying, then what does satisfy? Well, before getting to that question, we need to look at the second point, the wise word. So let's look down at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9 through 11. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. I want to make three brief points about the wise word from this text. First, these were given by one shepherd, and their words of truth. The one shepherd could refer to Solomon. Uh, but the ESV editors, as you might notice here, and most scholars understand this to mean they're from God, our capital S, shepherd. From the famous Psalm 23 to Ezekiel 34:15, when God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. We know God the Father is called a shepherd in the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus is repeatedly called the shepherd of Israel in the New Testament. He even declares himself so in John 10:11, among other places. Into this fallen world that is marred by sin and by death, we have a wise word from above. We need that word from God who's not corrupted by our fallen world. Scripture, these words of wisdom, are from God. Paul's second letter to Timothy puts it this way. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture in several places self-attests to its inerrancy and its source, and there's many good reasons to believe it so. Jesus himself considered Scripture to be from God. In Matthew 4.4, Jesus noted that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Wayne Grudem noted about this text. In the context of Jesus' repeated citations from Deuteronomy to answer every temptation, that the words that proceed from the mouth of God are the written Scriptures of the Old Testament. Paul and Peter both refer to the New and Old Testament as Scripture in different places as well. Second, these words are written in a particular context through human means. The preacher, quote, says here, sought to find delightful words. Just because scripture is God-breathed doesn't necessarily mean that he dictates every word, though he often does. Think about examples in Revelation where he tells the author he's instructed to write these specific things to these specific churches. But elsewhere we see where human authors use great care, as it is here with Solomon, or even their own training and experience. For example, Luke, in the first few verses of the gospel he recorded, notes that he wanted to write an orderly account, perhaps reflecting a bit on his own background. The words of Scripture are often then very much the words of the human author, but are also exactly what the sovereign God wants recorded in his Scripture. Here, we get to benefit from Solomon's wisdom and experience in his writing, while knowing of God's divine authorship and authority in the words as well. Third, the words are like well-driven nails or like goads, they are meant for our good and to bless us. Well-driven nails are good because they're stable. In our world that is constantly changing and challenging God, the, the, the words from the preacher and all of Scripture are like well-driven nails that provide us with a sturdy place to put our feet. I dare say none of us want to be on a deck that is put together with something other than well-driven nails or that's nailed in the wrong places. But God's Word is like a well-driven nail. It's also like goads, or a sharp stick used to keep animals moving. It keeps us on the right path. In the 21st century, we might say it's like a GPS. It lets us know the path of honoring and obeying God. God's wise word is essential for us as we journey through this weary world. It's also essential for us as a church. Let's preach and teach and counsel from the word of God. The wise word not tainted by our fallen world. Well, now with that helpful foundational understanding of God's word, let's see what it says about the meaning question we thought about. We're calling this last point the whole work. What does Solomon say in this book that we should do? We've seen what we shouldn't do, trust in wisdom or pleasure or great works or relationship or reputation. So what's left? Well, we have wise words from Solomon throughout the book that I want us to look at first. It is said in slightly different ways, but at least three times Solomon says something like, Enjoy the small things in life. He says in 2.24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. He says nearly the exact thing in 3.13 and in 8.15 again. And perhaps most critically, he says this in 6.3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Those are some stark words. Better to not be born than to be unable to enjoy life's good things. We need to recognize that God gives us all good good gifts, and we are meant to enjoy them. He did not have to make food tasty. He did not have to make the sun feel so nice and warm on a cool fall day. He dressed the flowers of the field more beautifully than man can ever match, even Solomon and all his splendor, as we read earlier. He did not have to give us companionship, family, or even pets, but he did. So let's enjoy them. These are reasons to praise him, and these are good things to enjoy. He also gave us work. Social scientists will tell you, and Aristotle before that, that there are basically four things in which which people find meaning, or at least try to find meaning. Faith, family, community, and work. Now, we don't expect work in that list, do we? Well, I worry a little in my own vocational work and policy that we're losing the meaning and dignity of work as a culture. Author Charles Murray noted in his book, Coming Apart, that a substantial majority of Americans, when asked what they most preferred in a job, they said uh, over these many years that they wanted work that was important and gave them a feeling of accomplishment. That was by far and away the top answer. The smallest percentage said short work hours or no danger of being fired. These answers were remarkably consistent in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. But then in 2006, the next time it was asked after 1984, more than double the percentage of respondents as before said they preferred short hours or job security. Now those aren't bad things, but uh, those choosing important, satisfying work dropped nearly a quarter to 43%. Work is becoming less something we do as a vocation, to becoming something that produces a payday with the least inconvenience and effort. Now, it's difficult to find joy in your work if you're mostly thinking about your pay and your time off. We live in an amazing time when many of us have real options what we do for a living. Not that long ago, we would have all done what our father or our mother did. We would have no choice in the matter at all. So let's pursue work which helps others and do work as unto the Lord, as we're commanded to do in Colossians 3. There it reads, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. By working for God, we can find joy in our work, whether it is prestigious in the world's eyes or not. When we understand that how we perform our job reflects on Him, then we can and find that joy and satisfaction in our work. Work, after all, is a pre-fall institution. It is harder now and involves toil, but the command to work predates the fall. I remember a scene from a movie about a world-famous surgeon who grew up very poor. His single mom had a grade school education and cleaned houses. There's a scene where a man who hired her to clean his house finds her and says, "'These floors!' Did you do these floors? She says, yes. Yes, I did. They're so shiny and clean, he says. She says, well, I don't know who was cleaning these before me, but they didn't do a very good job. I take pride in my work. Now, it just sends a chill up my spine. I hope it does for you too. To do something excellently, to do something well, should give us great pleasure. And to see good work and to be on the receiving end of good work should give us pleasure as well. We're told in Philippians 4 that... Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So let's practice excellence in our work, whatever that work may be. Is it any wonder that a single mom with such an attitude raised a son to grow up to be one of the world's best surgeons? I must have learned that work ethic from her. And both of their work is admirable. Well, we can find enjoyment in food and drink as well. They taste good, in case you didn't know. Uh, as long as we do not take these good gifts in excess to gluttony, let's receive them as good gifts from God and savor them. And let's share those blessings with others as well, as a token that these are all good gifts from God. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man, that, would, that uh, what he was made for, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That means enjoying Him in prayer and meditation and reading His Word, and fellowshipping with His people. And it also means enjoying His good gifts of food, of work, and of drink. But we can't leave our whole work there. We must look at Ecclesiastes, the last two verses here, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12, the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. There it says, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Here is the ultimate conclusion. Solomon has considered all the human nominees for purpose, and he found them wanting. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian who wrote about Ecclesiastes, put it. If the eternal alone can meet our deepest needs, it is hardly surprising that we are left frustrated and spiritually hungry by the temporal. Turn away from God, who alone can satisfy you, and it is inevitable that you will be dissatisfied with lesser and ephemeral pleasures. We need God, and Solomon tells us so. So does the psalmist in Psalm 73. He says, There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Paul goes on, uh, So far as to call all things rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And that's what Solomon is saying here. More specifically, he's saying that we should fear God. So what does he mean by that? Well, he means simply to recognize that God exists and to give him proper reverence in our lives. Here's Ferguson again. To fear God is to be sensitive to both his greatness and his graciousness. It is to know him and to love him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. To fear God, to trust God, to love God, and to know God. These are really one and the same thing. We cannot treat him like a talisman or a good luck charm. We must recognize that he's the creator of the universe and the rightful ruler of our lives. We ought to fear him and not men. What can men do to us? Do yourself a favor this year and read the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. It could change your life. Written by Ed Welch, it diagnoses what is all too common in our lives. We are so consumed by what other people think of us, wanting to shape their impressions of us in a positive way. And we work hard to hide any faults from them. And we're comparatively oblivious to what God thinks. So this book seeks to turn that around and it is wonderful for your soul. A healthy life and a place in paradise for eternity starts by fearing or revering God. But it goes on to say that we should keep his commandments. And why is that? Because the text says, For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. One purpose of the law is to instruct Christians on how to live, knowing, as we touched on before, that to live in a wise way will generally be a blessing to ourselves and to others. But I want to talk for a minute for those who perhaps have not considered what they'll say when they face God the Judge uh, the day they die. What do you plan on saying before Him? God will, in the words of this text, bring every single act into judgment. We may be able to hide our our sins from our friends and from our family. But we cannot hide them from God. He will bring everything, including that which is hidden, into judgment. Without a way to pay for those sins, we have good reason to fear God in a different way. In a dread way. Not just a reverence way. Some of us may have a good reputation in public. We may even be able to escape the charge of sin if it were to be prosecuted in a human court with human witnesses. But who among us has perfectly obeyed God's commands in secret? That means in our minds as well, even as we prayed earlier in the service. Jesus transformed the Ten Commandments. Now we must not murder, which means uh, not, not even hating another person in our heart. Now we must not commit adultery, which means even lusting after someone who is not our spouse. These commandments are difficult, and when we consider that every secret thought will be judged, it is enough to crush our pretenses of being declared fit for heaven based on our works. Then when we consider that God does not grade on a curve, but instead assist, insist that every sin be paid for, we are in really bad shape. That secret sin, perhaps the one you're thinking of right now, will not escape the righteous judgment of God. That alone is enough to keep you out of His perfect paradise of heaven and consign you to a place where you'll pay for that sin for all eternity. And this is where we're going to conclude We've seen that our world is messed up. It's not how God originally created it. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, rejected God, and we have too. When we consider our secret sins, we dread the God who will bring them into judgment. But there is hope. The hope is the one who is the true shepherd. The one who the Bible says is the wisdom of God, and who becomes to us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is Jesus Christ. He is much better than Solomon. Solomon built a great temple for God, but Jesus Christ himself is the new and greater temple of God. Solomon was a prodigal son and a sinner in many ways, but Jesus obeyed God perfectly in public and in every secret way. He did not seek fame or pleasure or fortune. He came as a lowly baby born in a manger. He was a carpenter, not an earthly king. When Satan tempted him with rule over the whole world, he refused by responding with wise words of Scripture. He obeyed his Father in heaven and was obedient even to the cross. God examines all his secret thoughts and Jesus passes with the highest honors. Why did he die then, you might ask? Solomon wrote about well-driven nails. Jesus absorbed what were doubtless well-driven nails by Roman soldiers. Those nails pierced his hands and his feet as he hung from the cross. He died as a substitute in place of all of those who would repent of their sins and trust in him. Believing that he paid the penalty for their sins. Jesus said this as recorded in John's Gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Proving that he too had passed from death to life, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Jesus is the one who relieves our fears of death and most especially of facing God. By trusting him, Jesus will cover our sins and give us his righteousness, permitting us to follow him by dying to ourselves and living to Him. We'll enter heaven and live with Him for all eternity. He's gone ahead of us to prepare a place. He said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. It is there in heaven that we will know true peace and true contentment. Until then, we should enjoy God's good gifts, work with excellence and with joy, And place our trust for meaning and peace and forgiveness with God and Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may we love you with all of our heart and all of our mind. May we throw away all the vain things that charm us most. May we cling to your wise words and seek to follow you and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, our peace, and our contentment. You have spoken into this dark and sin-filled world. May we heed your voice and love and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is found as an insert in your bulletin, His Amazing Grace, how sweet to sound. Look there at uh, verse 2. It was uh, His grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. And then by His, uh, by his grace, we are saved and we are forgiven. So let's praise God together in song as we sing Amazing Grace. Please stand.